Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What You're Reading with TBQ. Today's episode will go alongside the blog post for December 9th. As always, in that post, I will link to all the books, the quotes, and everything else that I mention. You can find that entry on tbqsbookpalace.com. While you're at it, feel free to find me on social media as well. For Twitter, that is the underscore book underscore queen. I'm listed under the same name for my Goodreads. Instagram is Danielle underscore TBQ. And if Tumblr is your thing, you've got two options. My safe for work Tumblr is the dash book dash queen dot Tumblr dot com. While my completely not safe for work, no seriously, I warned you, this is just porn here. Tumblr is TBQ after dark dot Tumblr dot com. Pick your social media poison and come join the fun. So I do have coffee this morning. Thank God. I'm curious. Assuming you drink coffee, of course, what do you put in yours? Do you use any of the seasonal, like, coffee creamers and that that is all out? Are you, like, pumpkin spice everything? Nothing wrong if there is. I'm not judging you. <laughs> I'm not a fan of it, but I'm not judging you if you're a pumpkin spice uh, latte fan or whatever. But I'm just curious. How do you take your coffee? Speaking of, I need a sip. It's still early. So I haven't been doing a whole lot of baking or specific kinds of cooking lately. I mean, I cook every night, but nothing to like share with recipes with you guys or whatever. I really should get into it. I made muffins this week, but those are nothing special. Um, I mean, I've done the recipe on the blog. I guess I can link back to that. Double chocolate banana, because it's chocolate in the batter and then chocolate chips. They are really good though. But I really need to get into more baking, especially for the holidays, right? This is when you're supposed to be baking and I'm just like putting it off. I really want to make some Christmas crack. <laughs> which the name always makes me laugh, but, and I think I have the recipe for that one up on the blog from last year. If I do, I will link to it. It is so easy. There's no baking involved. Like, it's crackers and a quick caramel toffee type mix that you're gonna, you know, heat up and pour over it, and then chocolate, and you can put candy or whatever on top or nuts. It's, anyway, it is so good. So, so good. I think I'm gonna have to make that next week. Of course, the other go-to recipe that I make every holiday season is peanut butter blossoms, you know, peanut butter cookies with the chocolate kisses in them. So good. I haven't made those in forever, probably since last year, actually. So yeah, I think that's going to have to go on the list for next week. Update on the whole denial that it's December thing. I am still firmly in denial. There is no presents that have been bought. There's no decorations up. I don't really have plans for either one of them yet. Hi, hello, my name is Scrooge. Bah humbug to you. It's just the way I am, you guys. <laughs> um, I hope that your holiday preparation and holiday season is going much, much better than mine, but this is just my reality here. Let's talk about a few things that went on in Romancelandia, or at least Romancelandia Twitter this week. So Carrie, who is a romance reader who is also actually from Utah, started a very good conversation on Twitter about safe sex in romance. As she said, it's 2017, we shouldn't have unsafe sex showing up in our romances. And I completely agree. Listen, I cannot stress this enough. Safe sex is sexy sex. If a couple just met and they haven't even had the most basic birth control and safe sex talk, they damn well better be using a condom. If later on they have that talk and they decide they're both safe and she's on some sort of birth control or whatever, go wild and fuck each other raw. That's fine. But not before that. It's just, it's not safe and it's sending the wrong message. You know what's sexy? Having characters who are responsible, consenting adults who talk about safe sex and then practice it. That is just, that is how it should be in reality. That's how it should be in our romance. Now, I'm not saying I need an author to spend a paragraph every sex scene describing putting the condom on, but they need to have a conversation, preferably not when the hero is halfway up her damn vagina, bareback. No, that is not the time to have that conversation. It needs to come, heh, 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 uh, it needs to come before the couple, well, is about to come. Period. It should come before they ever get naked, to be quite honest with you. What are your thoughts on safe sex in Romancelandia? Does the lack of condoms and or not having the talk before things get hot and heavy, does that pull you out of the scene? Do you not care one way or another? Let us know. I can't believe I have to actually say this out loud, but here we are. If you write romance, your characters, that is, the couple within your romance novels, can never die. 
I bring this up because there was apparently a book, I believe it's coming out pretty soon, where a hero from a previous book, the guy already got his happily ever after, had his book, found his woman, all that. Now we've got a couple books later, and that hero is killed. You cannot do that, authors, not if you want to write romance. I don't care that they were trying to say, well, in this book, this next, or in this series, rather, the book where the guy is killed is, you know, a, a next generation story. It's been some years. I don't care. Your previous couples cannot be killed off. Not if you want to say that you're writing romance. You know, there's a difference between having realistic stuff in your romance and completely breaking the rules of what romance is. That's breaking the rules of what romance is. Yes, we all know that eventually everyone dies. We all know that bad things happen. We all know that people can get sick and whatnot. We're not reading romance for you to give us your Nicholas Spark type storyline. We're not here for you to say, oh, they were happy until, oh, nope, he's dead now. No. And I'm talking about couples that specifically have a book. I'm not talking about side characters who don't have a book, but, you know, you see them happy. They've got a wife. They've got a partner, you know, whatever. And then something happens to them. That's a different story. Killing off other characters is a thing that happens regardless. And, yeah, it may make some of us upset at times if it's a beloved character, but that is okay in the sense that you can still call that book a romance. I'm talking about this guy had his own story, found his woman, had a happily ever after, and then now a few books later has been killed off. That is not a romance storyline. And the thing is, if an author is going to do that, what are they also going to do next? What rules are they going to break next? I can't trust an author that does that. I cannot trust them as a romance author. Now, the book in question, I was a horrible person. I did not write it down in my notes today, but I will link to it in the blog post. I have never read the author or the series that this is talking about or that I'm talking about, but um, I'm telling you now, I really have no, I have no desire to, to be honest, because, uh, like I said, if that is something that the author is going to do, then I cannot trust that the author is not going to completely disregard all the other rules of romance. Hard pass. Your characters, once they get a book, they live forever. I don't care how many decades it is later, I don't care what happened, they live forever. You don't kill them off. Not if you want to call it a romance. It's really that simple. And yet, here we are. I had to say that. So Kristen Higgins' new book has a blurb, and it is the biggest fucking dumpster fire of shit you have ever seen. I could talk about how this book is super fucking problematic, harmful, hateful, and wrong. I could go on for a few hours just ranting away about it. There would be a fuck-ton of fucks, fuck-off, and fuck-yous. I can guarantee that. But I'll refrain from doing so. Just barely. And instead, I'll just read the blurb to you right now, shall I? I'll let the blurb do the talking, because, oh, it says a lot, and not one bit of it is good. A warm, funny, and insightful novel about what happens when two friends get the wake-up call to stop waiting and start living. Georgia and Marley's days of fat camp are long behind them, but their struggle to love the skin they are in goes on, when their still obese friend Emerson calls them to her deathbed, dying from the strain of her weight on her heart. Marley and Georgia are stunned, and they agree to her final wish. Complete the list they made one summer. Things will do when we're skinny. Tackling the list won't be easy, but as Georgia and Marley start crossing things off, shop at store for normal people, hold hands with the guy in public, confront the people who judged us when we were fat, they begin to address old wounds and find out what's really been holding them back from having the lives they've always wanted. I'll just let that sink in for a minute, okay? Just, just let it wash over you. Both the blurb and the rage, even worse. I don't know, is that even possible at this point? The title? Good luck with that. If that's not the most patronizing title for a fatphobic piece of shit story, I don't know what is. Do I have to seriously break it down as to why this story is not okay? 
The fact that it encourages diet culture in every single way, from the young girls going to fucking fat camp to this new push to lose the weight so they can finally have a life. Someone hold my purse and earrings. Just, just hold them right there. <sighs> the fact that this friend is dying from the weight of her own fat, which is not a thing, and fuck you for that. The fact that said fat friend can't die until she passes on wisdom to her fellow fatties. Hey, don't be like me. Save yourself. Go f work that fucking blubber off you before you die too, you disgusting slobs. Like, fuck that as well. And then we have that bullshit about how they want to be skinny so they can hold hands with the guy in public. Oh, Higgins. And Berkeley for publishing this fucking mess. Don't think we don't see you as well, boo. You can take that thought about fat people and go fuck yourself with the rusty scale since you're so focused on the evil of weight. Do not pass go. Do not collect lube. I'm done. So done. Done with this blurb. Done with this goddamn diet culture, fatphobic, body-shaming culture that our society worships at. And frankly, I'm done with Higgins. Though I never was a fan of her books before, so really that's no great loss for me now. It's been pointed out again and again that Pretty much every other book from her has been problematic in other ways, transphobic, homophobic. There's been other books that had fat phobia in them as well. There's been sexism. There's been racism. Like, her books have always been problematic, and yet she keeps being published, and many people seem to love her books. But not everyone. I've only read one or two. It was years ago, and I wasn't impressed with them at all. And that was before even getting into the actual problematic areas of the stories. But thanks for showing us your ass, K.H., You've done many of us a favor. Welcome to the Never Touching Her Books Again Club. Here's your platinum membership card. I kind of had to step away and stop following everything that people were saying, and I couldn't sit and listen to the excuses coming from uh, Higgins and the publisher eventually when they did start to make a statement on it, because it's just a bunch of bullshit. Uh, Higgins comes on and says, well, this blurb is incorrect, and it's problematic, and that's not what the story is about at all, and I'm talking to my publisher now. I'm calling bullshit. That is such bullshit. This blurb is already up on retailer sites. It's already up as the copy for the book. It is already up on NetGalley for people to get copies to review, whether that is little old blogs like us, or if that is, uh, you know, librarians, booksellers, those who do professional reviews for publication sites and newspapers and stuff, that this book is out there. The arc is out there. The cover copy and blurb is out there. Um, this is not some mistake. This is not, oops, someone copied the wrong blurb there. This is not, oops, somebody wrote the wrong blurb. How do you write the wrong blurb that is that problematic and you're trying to tell me the book is nothing like that? Especially from a big publisher. This is not some self-published author that made a mistake. This is not some little two-bit publishing house. This is a big New York publishing house. Okay, Sometimes blurbs may not be the best representation of a book. It happens. But I can guarantee you that no one is going to write an entire blurb that is supposedly the complete opposite of what the story is about, which is kind of what Higgins is trying to claim, that that blurb is nothing like what the actual story is. I'm calling bullshit because nobody there at Berkeley is going to write a blurb for a book that is not doesn't exist, a story that doesn't exist, and then put it onto this book. That's not going to sell them. That's not going to help them. No. This was an intentionally done blurb, and now that there's backlash, now they're trying to backpedal to save their own asses. I'm not believing a word of it. You want to still give her a second chance? You want to wait and see what comes of it? You want to wait and read the book yourself? That's your choice. You do you. I'm not touching this book, period. Now, it's women's fiction. It's not romance doesn't matter. I don't care what genre this was listed as. This is not an okay blurb. This is not an okay book being told. But I'm not touching this book. Have no intention of ever touching it. And I'm just, I'm not going to fall for this idea of, well, that is the wrong blurb and it got put on there accidentally. We're trying to fix it. Bullshit. Bullshit. Or I've got others that try to say, well, it's not out until August of next year. There's there's going to be changes to the book before then. No, there's not. There's already arcs out. It's already up on NetGalley. Like I said, that goes out to more than just the little old uh, romance and women's fiction and whatever blogs. That's going out to big reviewers, to librarians, to booksellers, to publication outlets. Um, it's already out there as an arc. The only thing they're going to do between now and August is maybe a final go-through of edits, as in cleaning up typos and stuff like that. 
um, formatting it, obviously, getting it all nice and neat, getting it sent to print for the print copies, getting it sent for, you know, however they do it for different sites for Amazon and stuff for Kindle. It's not going to go through edits again. I had someone try and tell me, well, she's going to have, probably have edits due, you know, at the beginning of the year or in April or March. No, the book is out as an arc for someone to go and download right now and read. They're not still doing edits. They're not waiting on her to do edits, especially not edits that change the actual whole fucking story, which is what needs to be done. So, no, don't try selling me that bullshit either. It's out as an arc. That means it is one step away from being published. That that one step between arc and publishing is not editing. Editing happens before it goes to an arc. We're past that stage. Nobody's waiting on her to turn in final edits. Nobody's waiting to go over it and tell her what's problematic or to get a sensitivity reader. We're past that. They've got it out as an arc, and the next step is going to be for it to be out as a book. I'm not here to listen to you try and tell me that things are going to change. No, they're not. Not unless they pull that entire book. And honestly, I'm not holding my breath for that to happen. Because, like I said, she is a big author problematic books and all. She has made a big name for herself. She's got a big following. She's got big contracts. I don't see that they're going to pull her and change that book. I'm sure they're going to continue to try and backpedal and explain away why this is a book they're putting out or how we the readers are reading the blurb wrong or we shouldn't judge a book based on its blurb. Fuck that. I can judge a book however I wish. I judge a book on the blurb and the cover and the reviews that I hear from others. That's how I decide whether or not a book is worth my time, my energy, and my money to read and to spend time with. So, yeah, I'm going to judge it based on just the blurb, even if I haven't read the book. That's a valid thing. That is how you decide if you're going to read a book or not, is based on the blurb, based on things like the cover, which do sell a book to a reader, and you're going to base it on what others are saying. That's how this thing works. So if you're going to say, nope, don't judge a book by its blurb, then get out of this industry because you're in the wrong thing if you think that's how this works. I will link to as much as I can, um, obviously, to the book. I will link to a couple of threads that were going on of other people talking about how problematic this book is. They are much more eloquent about it than I was just now ranting and rambling. I will try to link to, I suppose, Higgins' explanation. <laughs> excuse of uh, the blurb and all that stuff. I will link to whatever I can, um, but I'm not touching this book. I'm not touching this book. And, you know, it's been brought up, well, are you surprised that this is being written, especially from an author that's been known to do stuff before that was bad? I'm not surprised. It doesn't make it any less harmful. It doesn't make it any less hurtful, and it doesn't make it any less wrong. You know, I'm going from complaining and ranting about a truly fat-phobic book that's coming out and the only good thing is, one of the books I'm going to be talking about later here in the podcast is a body-positive romance that was really good, really good for the body positivity. I will admit the story itself was a little bit weak, which I will talk about a little bit later on. But as far as the body positivity, that book is A+. This, this is a piece of shit. I don't touch shit. You can't pay me enough ever to touch this shit. Nope. So you know how we can't, literally cannot go a day without someone shitting on the romance genre? We got a lovely, lovely surprise yesterday of who is doing it now. Hillary Clinton threw the romance genre under the bus, basically saying that bodice rippers from the 70s are the reason for the rape culture and sexual harassment of today. I can't. I'm not going to go off onto a rant on this. How many times in just the months I've been doing this podcast have I done a similar rant about how this is wrong, how stop throwing us under the bus, how we are not the cause, the genre is not the cause for rape culture and all that. Like, this is, i just be repeating myself, and I am literally exhausted. I am exhausted. I do not want to get into this again. So, I will link to the original, it, it was part of a Washington Post article, so you can only see the full article if you are subscribed to them, but I will link to some of the ones that shared the quote from the article and stuff so that you can see what at all she was saying. Um, and I will link to a whole bunch of romance authors and readers who did go out and, you know, fight again on Twitter defending our genre. Um, I'm just, I'm just too exhausted to get into another rant for it, but I will link to what they had to say. They had a lot of great things to say because I love our community 
It's not perfect. I say this every time. It's not perfect. I'm never under the delusion that it's perfect, but I still love it that it is as great as it is and that so many are so quick to defend our genre, defend each other and all that. Like, I just, I love it. So I am disappointed that Clinton said that because so many of us I know in the genre, uh, or in the community rather, really supported her and still support her. And, you know, for many that's not going to change, but um, she doesn't get a pass. You know, she she made this jab, she did this, said this thing that is truly harmful and wrong. Um, she doesn't get a pass. And for those who are like, well, she made a mistake, or, you know, she just doesn't know the books, you're right, and yes, and yeah, she could learn. I think anyone can learn. Whether or not they do is a different story. I think anyone can learn better. But that doesn't mean that we get to give her a pass just because of who she is or just because we've looked up to her. Like, no, that's all the more reason to call her out on her shit. We went over this before, right? I can love something and still call it out on its shit. So, Hillary, disappointed in you doing that? I hope you learn. I hope you listen to what everyone's saying. And I hope you decide to pick up a romance novel or two and uh, educate yourself. Moving on to the blog recap for the week. First, Jen, Pat, and I all shared our top five holiday romances. There's a lot of options here. Historical, a romantic suspense, and a variety of contemporaries in various heat levels. There's an anthology with all over 40 couples, and I've got a few MM titles as well. So stop by and share your favorite holiday romances with us. Next, Jen reviewed Dance With Me by Alexis Daria, which comes out on the 12th. She gave it four and a half stars, making it a royal pick for December. She writes that it's no secret that I absolutely loved the first book in this series, and I'm happy to report that once it hits its strides, Dance With Me is just as satisfyingly sexy. Have you started this series? I have both of them on my Kindle, and I really need to get my ass in gear and pick them up. Then, Pat did a quick review for a holiday novella that came out this week. The Cowboy's Special Christmas by Barbara McMahon, giving it three and a half stars. She calls this a sweet, romantic story that will warm your heart. It's also only 99 cents, so if you're interested in a holiday story between a rancher and the new-to-town veterinarian, go pick this one up. And finally, Jen reviewed Hookin' Up by M.J. Williams, an FF contemporary that releases on the 12th as well. She gave this one four stars and says, This book was satisfying and thought-provoking, and I hope people read it. To me, it felt like a completely fresh take on sex and romance. I have to admit, I am really curious to see what others think about this book. It's not your usual romance, and I really hate putting it that way, but I'm not sure how else to describe it. Regardless, it sounds, as Jen put it in her review, fucking fascinating, and I may have to see if my library can get this one. The only downside is this book is from an LGBTQ press that is known for being really expensive with their ebooks, so this is one that I would have to ask my library for because it's beyond my book budget, but it sounds really good. There were also the usual posts up this week, Lusting for Covers on Sunday, new releases on Tuesday, and daily book deals Monday through Saturday, with a recap of the deals every Sunday. I apologize in advance to your one-click finger, while also encouraging you to go treat yourself to a new book. Or ten. Hey, I won't tell. Next week, we've got a four-star review from Pat, and a five-star glowing review from Jen that you don't want to miss. As to my reading week, I managed to finish three books. Almost five, but I won't be able to finish my other two books, my audiobook and my ebook, before I have to finalize this podcast, so we'll just save those for next week's discussion. So, without further ado, let's get into the book discussions. So first of all, we had an incident with the coffee maker, which means no coffee this morning, so this might be a very interesting book chat, but we're going to try our best. I did take a shot of Dr. Pepper to try and get me through. I'm not even joking. So, first up, I finished Off the Ice by Avon Gale and Piper Vaughn, giving this one a solid four stars. Tristan is a hockey player playing in the professional league. He was drafted very young while he was still in college, so he's now still taking classes between seasons to get his business degree. While taking some summer courses, he meets Sebastian. Only problem is Sebastian is his sociology professor. 
Now, before I go any further, I should make it clear here. The two of them do not get together in any way until after Tristan is out of the class. If that makes this book any, you know, any easier for you, I know that dynamic is a hard pass for some for legitimate reasons, but I'm just putting that out there. They don't get together until after he is out of the sociology class. Sebastian is a little bit older, his early 30s compared to Tristan, who is 23. And as I mentioned, Sebastian is a sociology professor. He's also a hero of color. He's Puerto Rican-American. So the main conflict here is, first of all, their forbidden feelings for one another, although as I already said, they do not act on those feelings or get together until after the class is over and Sebastian is no longer his teacher. But after that, the conflict relies on the fact that Sebastian is proudly out both to his family and in his professional life and just in life in general, while Tristan is not out. He is firmly closeted, both from his family even, and then obviously from friends and the hockey league. He's afraid to come out professionally, especially because there's no queer NHL player, or at least no openly queer NHL player, and he's afraid what it might do to his career. And then he's even kind of worried about saying anything to his family because he just doesn't know what they'll say. And even though they're good people, he's got that worry of what if they don't love me anymore, which is a legitimate concern. And he has to come to terms with that later on. He does come out to his family um, and they're fine with it. They love him anyway, and there's no issues or drama going on there. Eventually, he does come out in his professional life, at least to his teammates, not necessarily a big press conference to the world, but to his teammates, he does come out. And it's also fine. There's no drama going on there. And that's when he finds out that he's not the only closeted queer player on his team. Hello, sequel heroes. How you doing? I see you. I see you. I really enjoyed this one. It was just a good, solid read for me. The writing was good. The story was good. The romance was good. But I bet you know what I loved the most, don't you? Yep, the sexy times. These two were hot as fuck together, and a bit kinky too. The kink is mild, don't worry, and it's mostly just a bit of dominance play with Sebastian as the dominant. Um, I especially loved this because Sebastian is the smaller of the two as far as like height and body build, but instead of being the stereotypical submissive and or bottom, he is the dominant top in this relationship, and I loved it. Anyway, there's a spanking or two for Tristan, of course, and a bit of light humiliation play, I suppose you would call it, but it's all done well, and it's all consensual, and it's all sexy. I have no complaints. So I'm not even sure what scene to describe to you guys, because frankly, it was all so hot. Um... Okay, one scene that stands out isn't so much for the heat level or how long it is, Heh, heh. Um, but rather it's for how a situation is handled here. So the two of them are making out and grinding and stroking each other and whatever, and Sebastian starts talking about things that he'd like to do to Tristan at some point. Well, between the dry humping and the sex talk slash kink talk, uh, Tristan has an unexpected orgasm, a premature ejaculation, basically. He's a bit embarrassed about it, but here's what I loved. Sebastian tells him that it's okay, that there's nothing to be ashamed of, and that knowing he could get Tristan off like that was hot as hell. And I just loved that, because, hey, we've all made jokes about a man shooting too soon, but really, it shouldn't be something that we shame anyone for. You know, things happen, arousal is a tricky bitch, and honestly, get yourself a partner who doesn't see an oops moment like that as something to be mad about, but instead gets off on seeing you go off so quickly. Listen, it's not the end of the world. You can have as many orgasms as you want. Just go get them all, okay? Uh, but trust me, there were a lot of great sexy times in this book. I know I shared a few examples while I was reading, and I'll have links to all those quotes in the blog post. My advice to you, just grab some ice before you start reading any of the sexy scenes in this book. Just trust me on that. I'm so looking forward to the rest of this series. As I said, we find out that a few of Tristan's teammates are also queer. One is even a bisexual man, and I am dying for their stories. I'll be back for more from both Gail and Vaughn, both their writing together and separately. Totally recommend this one. Next, I finished up my audiobook, Duke of Sin by Elizabeth Hoyt, narrated by Ashford McNabb. This one gets four stars from me. Bridget is a bastard daughter. Her mother is a lady of the ton. Her father was some footman that she never knew. Bridget was lucky enough to have her mother provide for her in some ways, uh, finding her a good home to be raised in, helping her to find work later on. You know, it's better than many other bastard children have. 
but obviously her mother was still never in her life and doesn't truly, or doesn't at least maybe show that she does indeed love her daughter. Bridget is currently a housekeeper for the Duke of Montgomery, but she's not there purely to be a housekeeper. She's also there to try and find the sensitive letters that the Duke holds, letters he plans to use to blackmail her mother. Val, a.k.a. the Duke, is a bit of a flamboyant rake, but don't let his flashy clothes and seemingly carefree attitude trick you. He's completely ruthless when it comes to collecting and using blackmail on everyone and anyone in the town. He calls himself the villain of the story. I don't know for sure if I'd call him a villain or an anti-hero or just a sometimes morally questionable hero. I don't know. But he has his asshole moments, and he doesn't necessarily understand right from wrong all the time, and he's definitely vain as fuck, but I didn't ever hate him. I have mixed feelings on Val, but they lean more towards neutral than hate. So Val had such a shitty childhood. I mean, his father was an evil fucker, and what he would do to Val was downright horrible. Hell, what he and his secret society of evil fuckers would do to children and women was disgusting. Val's childhood is why he is the way he is now, really. So, while at times I didn't really like Val's I listen to no one and I have no conscious um, attitude, I couldn't really hate him for it either, because then we'd get a flashback or mention of his childhood, and I just wanted to hug young Val close and keep him safe. Jesus, I wanted to kill his dad. His father would give young Val a kitten, let Val name it, get attached to it, and then he would kill the kitten to teach Val a lesson. This went on for years, until a slightly older Val, though still a young boy at the time, killed his cat before the Duke could do it again. And ever since, Val has kept himself locked away from emotions and attachments, be it humans or animals. Seriously, Val was not a perfect guy by any means, but I still wanted to heal his tortured soul. And as I said, kill his father, who was a true villain. While Val and Bridget were fairly hot together, I must say Asa's book still holds the award for the A-plus dirty bits. But there were some good scenes here, though they don't happen until quite late in the book. Their first time starts with a very sensual bath for Bridget, where she realizes she has the power as she teases Val, you know, slowly cleaning her body while he sits in a chair watching with his hand over his breeches, slowly losing his control. And in a later scene, when she first gives a blowjob, again, she experiences the power she holds over him in their sexual encounters. And I am always here for that. I love when the heroine realizes her own sexual power and agency and just realizes that, you know what, she is a badass sexual being and the hero is lucky to have her. Like, that is my catnip. Now, as much as I did enjoy this book, there were some things that I wasn't so fond of. For example, Hoyt uses the phrase heathen land to describe, I believe she was talking about India at the time. <sighs> Why? Why? Don't do this. Don't do this. And then during their first sex scene, Bridget is surprised that Val, who dresses so flamboyantly, aka feminine, can also be so base and raw. Basically what she was saying was, wow, he's so girly, but yay, he's masculine enough to dick me out real good. First of all, we could have an entire discussion about how clothing is not gendered, but I digress. Second, that mindset is pretty damn homophobic because his flamboyancy is always framed as if it's somehow less than manly. And third, this is a modern mindset being put into a historical book. Because while, yes, the stupid ideas about gender and even toxic masculinity have always existed in history to one extent or another, during this time period, the very fashion for the super-rich aristocrat men was what we would call flamboyant and frilly and feminine. So they wouldn't think anything of the rich duke wearing purples and pinks and bows and being so vain about having his hair neatly done and all that shit. That was normal back then for someone in his position. So for Bridget to think that his way of dressing or even his way of acting wasn't very masculine and therefore being surprised that he could be 
masculine and manly in the bedroom anyway, that's pulling from modern gender bullshit, not what was going on back then. While that scene was hot, and while I did enjoy this book, I'm not going to let that gender bullshit and vague but still there homophobic bullshit pass. I love Elizabeth Hoyt, which is all the more reason to call this shit out. Otherwise, nothing will change. While we're on the topic of their bedroom scenes, we've got another hero who wants to wrap her hair around his cock and come on it. Why? No. No. And fuck no. Again, for the people in the back, keep your jizz away from our hair. Val was also so dramatically over the top, especially for his sexy talk and his thoughts of passion. Like, at one point he compares his sexual frustration, says this out loud, compares it to a goat. I, I still don't even know about it, okay? No idea. And another time he gives us lines like, the seed from his loins spilled into her furnace. And I, I just, I can't. I can't take him seriously with that. There were so many over-the-top lines from him, and each time I'd roll my eyes. For fuck's sake, Val, calm your tits and talk like a normal person, okay? One last thing, though it's a small thing, but I lost count of how many times Val's eyes were described as azure, always azure eyes. He'd open his azure eyes. He'd close his azure eyes. His azure eyes would smolder at her naked body and bam, she was pregnant. Okay, I totally made up that last example, but whatever. I get the point. His eyes are in an unforgettable azure color. Move on. Also, that is the most times in my entire life that I've said Azure, and I'm pretty sure it now sounds incorrect. Do you hate when that happens? Like, you say something enough times, and then you start thinking you're saying it wrong. Kind of like if you spell something far too many times in a row, and then you look at it, and you're like, is that really how you spell the? I'm questioning everything now. You know what I'm talking about. It's not just me, right? Total random tangent. Get back on track. Anyway... While Val and Bridget's story wasn't perfect for me, and it's not my favorite from the series, it's still a solid read, especially for anyone that is a fan of the series already. I cannot recommend this series enough. Once you start it, you won't be able to stop. Luckily for that, there's, what, 12 books and a few novellas? Perfect for a good binge read. Definitely recommend. After that, I finished up Bad for the Boss by Talia Hibbert. This one is between three and a half and four stars for me. On the one hand, I think the story could have been quite a bit tighter and more developed. On the other hand, I just really fucking enjoyed it, minor flaws and all, and I'm happy to have found a new author to follow. So I'm stuck in that in-between rating. Our heroine, Jennifer, is a curvy black woman. Um, let's just take a moment to appreciate all of that because uh, fuck yes. She works at a, like a marketing firm, like social media type stuff. There's also a bit of a suspense plot that goes through this story, which ties into her past. See, when she was a girl, her house was broken into and her parents were murdered. She was the one who had to hide and call for help. Obviously, she's struggled with things after that trauma, and she has found some ways to cope over the years, and everything was going okay until a stalker shows up in her life again. But both of her parents' murderers are locked away, so who could it be? Theo is a bit older than Jennifer. He's 40 to her, I believe it's 26. And he's quite rich as he's one of the partners of the company. Yeah, he's technically one of her bosses, hence the title, of course. Theo is also a hero of color. He's Chinese-British. This book takes place in Britain, of course. Now, I know that the boss-employee dynamic is just a no-go for some readers, especially lately with all the sexual harassment stories that are being shared, as they should be. Uh, personally, this trope isn't really my thing, but I don't hate it outright, and I didn't necessarily hate it here. I did like that Theo was well aware of the power he holds over Jennifer, and he wanted to draw up this contract that would somehow work in her favor if their relationship goes south. I mean, yeah, the whole contract thing is a bit eye-roll worthy, especially after Fifty Shades. Um, but the contract doesn't really come into play in the end at all. I mean, remember, I did say the story was a bit weak in places and underdeveloped as far as, like, follow-through. This was one of those things. 
Contract or no, I did like that Theo was aware of the power imbalance, at least, and that Jennifer had no problem calling him on his shit if he did happen to slip up. Like, when he finds out about another male employee who was sexually harassing Jennifer, he fires the man. Now, to be fair, the man was guilty of some other things, too, but, you know, make no mistake, it was mostly because Theo wanted to help Jennifer out by getting rid of the creep. When Jennifer finds out, though, she tells Theo off for stepping in and trying to solve her problems for her. That, the heroine fighting back and not taking any of the hero's shit, that is what I must see in any romance where there's some sort of power imbalance between the hero and the heroine. Otherwise, it's just, no. I, I can't do it if the heroine has literally no backbone and truly no power at all against the hero. I need her to have something. Now, would I love it if they were both completely equal? Sure. But if there is going to be that power dynamic, she's still got to have something. She's got to have a fight. She's got to have her own ability to stand on her own and against the hero. And Jennifer did have that, and I appreciated that. And that's what made this, I think, work for me. Not that it was like a favorite trope. Like I says, the, the boss employee thing is not really a favorite of mine. But I didn't hate it here because... She still had some power. She still had the ability to stand up to him, and she did. That's what I need. So I mentioned that this book takes place in Britain, but to be honest, the setting doesn't really play into the story at all. By that, I mean I actually kept forgetting that it even was set over, you know, over the pond. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's another instance where the story could have been stronger by means of building the setting more into the book. Do you know what I loved most about this book? We have a body-positive romance here. Um, fuck yes. Yes, yes. Thank you. Jennifer has stretch marks, and she has hips, and she has dimpled thighs, and giant, not-perfect-and-perky tits. But best of all, she's not ashamed of her body. She doesn't hate it, and there's no body or fat shaming going on anywhere in this book. The opposite of it, in fact. Her body... Fat and stretch marks and all is treated like the goddamn temple it is. Theo loves her, loves her body, and her body is never fetishized. It's never treated like this other thing on page. You know what I mean? Now, yes, she has this very brief moment when they're first naked together and her knee-jerk response is to cover up her belly. But that's it. Otherwise, she's happy and she's comfortable in her body. Theo worships it, gets off on it, and the author just does an amazing job at writing a curvy heroine and body-positive and realistic sex. So for that alone, I am so coming back for more from Talia Hibbert. Definitely recommend it for that alone. Also, the sex is pretty damn hot, too. I must admit, the one scene when they have the quickie on his desk, I wasn't thrilled with the scene. But that's because I'm always a bit iffy about workplace quickies when there are people on the other side of the office door. You know, this was during business hours. His secretary was just outside. They're going to hear. They just, they are. I don't care how quiet you are or if you're, you know, stuffing rags in your mouth. I mean, not that she does that. But my point is, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear the sounds of it. You're going to hear some moans or whatever. Like, you cannot be that quiet while you're fucking. Otherwise, you're not doing it right. I'm just saying. Um, and then there's obviously the lingering odor of sex, too, which we never talk about in Romancelandia, right? It's just like, oh, yeah, they just fucked over there, and now she's walking around. Um, she's going to smell like sex. So is he. That's just the reality of it. But we forget about that part of reality in Romancelandia, don't we? Plus, there's the whole, you know, she just went into his office. She came out looking rumpled and flushed 30 minutes later thing. People know. <laughs> Everyone would know, okay? So it's not that the scene here was done poorly. No, it was hot. It's just that my own preferences come into play here. You know, no office hookups during business hours. Keep it zipped up until after hours. Let the anticipation build and all that. And just don't give the office workers easy ammo to use against the heroine. Because we all know the office quickies don't affect the men, just the women. Because fuck you, patriarchy. But the sex scenes themselves, hot. And hey, that's what matters. Technically, this story isn't flawless. Not by a long shot. In fact, I would say that if I stopped to think about it more and talk about it more, I mean, I could come up with a lot of things where it needed more development or it needed something more done. But 
it's just damn enjoyable. And I really loved Talia Hibbert's writing style and voice and the body positivity. I'm just glad I picked this one up. And that is all thanks to Fangirl Musings, who is an awesome romance reader and does reviews over on YouTube. I will link to all of her social media, of course. So she was live tweeting this book which she does with all of her books, so you should definitely follow her on Twitter. And after seeing some of the great quotes she shared, I one-clicked it quickly. Now, at the time, it was 99 cents, which is probably why I did it so easily, to be honest. Hey, I'm cheap as fuck. I'm not even joking. Anyway, usually when I buy books, freebies or otherwise, they just go to the TBR Kindle graveyard for years and years. Um, but this week, I really needed something that wasn't a review book, and I wanted something different. And I also wanted to challenge myself to read a new author because I started to realize this week when I was going through, I was going through stuff um, like on my Goodreads to look up some different books, and it just made me realize that I tend to stick to the same group of authors that I know and love, and I mean that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, but I do need to branch out. Not just as a reviewer, which that alone, if I'm going to be a reviewer, I need to branch out. I can't just stick to the same old things. But just as a reader for myself, I just need to branch out. I need to try more authors. I need to read more, you know, more broadly in the genre, I suppose. Plus, I really want to make a point to read more romances from women of color. And, well, here we are. This is what it led to, me picking up this book, and I'm glad that I did. Um, speaking of the, you know, wanting to try new authors and especially read more women of color authors, that's one of my, I suppose, reading resolutions for next year, which maybe we'll talk about that closer to um, the end of December. But that's one thing that I really want to work on next year is just pushing myself to go outside of my little bubble of the usual books and the usual authors that I grab. So, like I said, I think we'll talk about that more towards the end of the month, but just quick mention of it here. Um, anyway, as soon as I finished this one, I actually went and one-clicked her newest title, which just came out last week, Mary Inkmas. It's on sale for 99 cents right now as well, though I doubt that it'll stay that low for more than maybe another week or so. I think that's usually what she does is maybe the first two or three weeks after release is on sale and then it goes back up to, I'm guessing, $2.99 because that's what, that's what the price is right now for Bad for the Boss is $2.99. So if you're interested, I would say go grab Mary Inkmas while it is still cheap. I haven't read it yet, but I think I'm going to read it next week because I truly did enjoy my first time with her writing. And also, I just need a sexy holiday read in my life. So win-win, Mary Inkmas sounds like just the thing. It is only Wednesday while I'm recording this part, and I'm like, my voice is going, nope, I'm done. I am just done. You know, it wouldn't be a podcast without some interruptions, and even though I record all these in different parts throughout the week, um, I still get interrupted like a million times. Welcome to my life. So I'm just about done with Megan Erickson's new novella, Hidden Truths, which is only 99 cents for, I think, a few more days. Uh, so hurry up and grab it if you are interested. I'll talk about it next week, of course, but it will go up in to full price by then. If you want it, grab it now. I'm really enjoying it. I would recommend it. After that, I think I'm going to start Outside the Lines by Anna Zabo. This one comes out on the 18th, and it's an interesting premise. It's a menage, kinda. So you've got this married poly couple, a hero and a heroine, who bring in another partner, but he's gay, so he's only attracted to the hero. I've tried two books from Zabo before, and I've really enjoyed them. I really need to read more. Um, so I am very much curious to see how this story turns out. I will have to let you guys know next week. I'm almost done with my audiobook as well, which is Kiss of Steel by Beck McMaster. It's a paranormal steampunk romance that I picked up at the beginning of the week while I was still waiting for a library hold to come in, but luckily this one was available, and luckily it's book one in the series because just my luck, it would have been like book five that was available and none of the others. I'm quite enjoying this one, but I'm also a bit confused about some of the world building in it. Um, we'll talk about all that more next week, but for now, just know that I would still recommend this one, and I will be back to finish up the rest of the series in the future.
I'm not sure what audiobook I'll be starting after that since I am still waiting on my library hold to come in. So back into the Available Now section of Overdrive I go. What about you? Tell me what you're reading this weekend. I hope it's good, but if it's not, you know I'm always up for a good book rant as well. Also, don't forget my other question for you. Or rather, two of them. Uh, first, what are your thoughts on safe sex in Romancelandia? Does the lack of condoms or not having the talk before things get hot and heavy, does that pull you out of the scene, out of the book? Or do you not care one way or another? Let us know. I'm curious. And second, what are some of your favorite holiday romances? Tell us in the comments section of our holiday romance uh, recommendation post that went up on Monday, or you can find me on Twitter or whatever. Just tell us what your favorite romances for the holidays are. I suppose the other question that I asked you at the beginning was about your coffee, right? If you drink it, uh, what do you put in it? Do you use any of the like seasonal coffee creamers that they come out with? Do you stick to something tried and true? Are you a drink it black person? I don't understand that, but hey, I'm not the one drinking it. You do you. My coffee is totally a more creamer and add-ins and coffee, although I have gotten better, I must say. It used to be it was like literally just straight creamer in a cup warmed up <laughs> with a dash of coffee sprinkled over it, just wafted it over the top. I'm, you know, now almost to like half and half, half coffee, half other stuff. Definitely not the healthiest thing, which is why I stick to only one cup, and I only do it at home because I I can't get the, you know, my exact flavor if I'm out to a coffee place or whatever. But I'm I'm in my little coffee rut here at home. I I just do the one type, and it has to be in this one mug of mine, which is a Rory Gilmore mug that I found on Cafe Press, if I remember. Maybe I'll try to link to it if it's still up there. But I only know how to make my coffee perfect in this cup, like the proportions of it. If I try making it in any other cup. My coffee tastes like shit. Can't do it. And my creamer of choice, in case you are curious, is the caramel vanilla from Coffee Mate. I'm pretty sure it's Coffee Mate that I buy. Um, and vanilla sugar. A little bit of vanilla sugar is the answer to everything in your baking or sweet, you know, cooking or whatever needs. Um, and whipped cream. I'm sorry, but it's not, it's not complete without whipped cream. I am a child who needs whipped cream on top of their hot drink, even their coffee. Fight me. <laughs> Oh, I'm just like dragging this on and on and on. My mind is all over the place. But what is your go-to holiday dessert or cookie recipe? What do you have to make every year? I mentioned that I'm probably going to be doing the Christmas crack. And I also mentioned the peanut butter blossoms. So tell me, what is it that you make this time of year? What is it that you like to have for the holidays? I hope you enjoyed this week's What You're Reading chat. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and fall in love with some truly fantastic books. Until next time, enjoy TBQ.